That's a clip and a memory that I'm almost certain, can't always say this about a movie clip, but I'm almost certain everybody in this room has seen, what, a dozen times at least, or at least are familiar enough with the words from that scene that when you hear those words, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. If you're like me, you automatically transition from the thoughts of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, and you begin thinking about what that means on a personal level. It's likely that when we think about home, we bring to this room a variety of ideas and memories, maybe even sense. When I think of home, I sometimes think of things my mother or grandmother cooked and the way that just smelling those things made me feel alive, comforted, happy. When I think of home, I think about a particular home that I lived in at a, at a particular time in my life and how I will always forever think that is the home of my childhood. When I think about home, I think about schools that I attended and friends I had there and teachers who were a part of my early formation and making me who I am or trying to correct who I was at that point. When I think about home, sometimes I think about the good old days at Minute Maid when we enjoyed baseball and actually had a chance of winning. <laughs> when I think about home, I think about churches that I've been a part of that had people and pastors that embraced me and loved me and treated me like I was their family and I responded to them as if they were my family and just being in their presence or being in the presence of that building made me feel so comforted so helped, so safe and secure. I'm certain that, that if we took a moment and just went around the room, all of us could say, well, this is what I think of when I think about home, or this is the memory that I have when I think about home. And even if you've lived in dozens of homes over your life, there's probably one, maybe two, that are special to you. That when you need to go to a happy place in your mind, you begin to think about those years, those times, those memories, those friends, the events that were at that home. And maybe you find yourself sometimes thinking when, when life is just a little bit too tough, a little bit too heavy, thinking or saying or singing, yeah, that is true, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. I hope that around the room we have those memories, that everyone in this room can say, that reminds me of home. This is a memory of home. And I hope that you also have the opportunity from time to time, maybe the freedom or the flexibility or the resources, that when you really need to get a taste of home, not only do you know where that is and who those people are that, that provide you with that memory of home, but you have the ability and the time and the resources to go back to that place and be reminded of home. I've done that. I've taken my children to the high school I graduated at and stood outside in front of the North Pike High School sign and took pictures of them. This is where your dad graduated and the years spent there were happy, happy years. Home memories for me. I, I hope you have the same opportunity, the same freedom and flexibility to do the same thing. But I want to tell you this morning that that's not the case in everybody's life. That when 
Some people in this world, some people in this city, maybe even a person or two in this room, think about home, their memories aren't happy. Their thoughts don't bring comfort and strength and encouragement. And to go back to that place, whether they're happy or sad moments, is an impossibility. It's just, just not possible. Can't be done. Either it doesn't exist anymore, or the relational barriers don't allow for it anymore, or maybe there's legal things that says you can't go back to your place of home. So for those people in the world, those people in this room, to think about home is not comforting, not helpful, not happy. But it's a challenge. And sometimes it's, it creates turmoil inwardly about them, about what their home life was and where their home is and what that means for them now and tomorrow. For if we can't think about home and we can't ever return home, then that changes everything about the things we have planned for our life. Or at the very least, it changes the way that we remember and view our life growing up and the very early memories of who we are. Someone that's in that state, someone that's in that place is known as an orphan. So I want to talk to us this morning using the word orphan, and I want to unpack that a little bit from a biblical stance and, and, and also from just a real practical stance in the world that we live in. What or who is an orphan? Well, let me give you a real cold definition of that, that if you looked it up on Wikipedia or you looked it up in a dictionary this afternoon, you might find something like this. An orphan is a person, animal, or thing that is without protected affiliation or sponsorship. Sounds cold, doesn't it? Whether it's a person or an animal, I've even seen people who have been laid off and are looking for work called work orphans. Whether you're in any of those categories or states, this sounds like a cold definition. Without sponsorship, without affiliation, without provision or connection. Now, I want to try for a few moments to just pull this definition down to children in a specific way. Imagine that you were a child without affiliation, sponsorship, protection, provision, maybe even identity. The statistics will flow in a few moments, but just think about that right now and just acknowledge with me that there aren't just one of those people in this world, but there are millions of children in this world who fit this category of being an orphan. Now, we can talk about global orphans, and we also can talk and think about domestic orphans, and it, and it might be helpful to kind of divide or, or give definition between the two. A global orphan would be someone who lives anywhere on God, God's green earth. And they are children who are orphans because mom and dad are deceased or mom and dad were killed in conflict or in some cases in gang violence in this world. Or maybe because mom and dad died of some type of disease. In Africa alone, there's 40 million orphans and if, they weren't, if they're not an orphan because of war and conflict, they're an orphan because of the AIDS epidemic over the last 20 years on that continent. Orphans globally could be children who were just abandoned because mom and dad had no vision for how they would ever take care of them. So it was better to take them to a place like a World Vision camp or an American Red Cross camp and just pray for the best that someone would be able to do better than they could for them. Or maybe they were just unwanted children. 
When we say global orphan, probably that's immediately what we think of. Children in Africa, children in Asia, children somewhere else in this world outside of the United States. And it's true that those children who are considered orphans in the United States or a domestic orphan are in a slightly different scenario or place than what a global orphan would be. In our land, we have child welfare laws that in 99% of the cases cover children who are orphans because of parental death or because of parental abandonment or because of one of those other reasons that I discussed earlier about a global orphan. Child welfare steps in and says these things must be provided and if a kinship placement is not possible, we'll find someone who is a citizen of the state who has a burden for them and will take care of them, will pay them, will make sure that medical and educational, all those things are taken care of. The state will be the one who provides for them. You've often heard the, the term this child is a ward of the state. And as cold as that sound, there is some security in there for that says to a child or says something about a child that at least the state will be conscious of their needs and of their, their welfare. So there's a global orphan and there's a domestic orphan. Each would fit the bill that they are unaffiliated, sometimes unsponsored, lacking identity and future and real definition about who they are in this world. Well, why would we help an orphan, or why do people help orphans? For when we talk about an orphan, or we see a video about an orphan, watch a film, and it's becoming popular to, to see Christian films, or films that contain content that speak to the orphan need in the world, we may be compelled to at least do something. So why would we do something? What, what are some of the reasons? Maybe we're cause-motivated. We see a cause. We recognize that by the grace of God, we aren't in that plight, but we want to be a part of the solution, and we want to help that. And we've seen the church be engaged in causes from the very beginning. In our time, in our life, we've seen the church in America get involved in water well projects because people need clean water. We've seen some churches or congregations get involved in feeding the hungry, and they they spend a significant part of their budget in buying food and making sure that food banks are able to distribute that in a particular place for people in need. It's cause-oriented. Or churches that are involved in malaria or AIDS-related issues to see that people have the medical care and attention that they need to cover and attend to that need in their life. We are cause-motivated people most often. People may get involved with orphans because you're compelled by the statistics. Let me just throw a few stats out for you. These won't be on the screen, but let me just throw a few out for you that, that might make you think for just a minute. There's probably about 210 million orphans globally right now. In fact, that stat is about a year and a half old, and it's a UNICEF stat, but it's the best stat that we can come up with, and trying to figure out how many orphans are in each country is really a complicated thing. So, I would say if we took 210 million and just added 10% generously, we would sit here and say, my goodness, there's 230 or so million orphans in the world today looking for mom and dad, wondering about home, wishing they had a home, thinking about what it would be like to go back to a home that maybe they remembered they had at some point in their life before conflict or separation set in. In India alone, this is, this is going to stagger you, I think, because when I pulled it, it, it staggered me. If there's 230 million orphans in the world, 
UNICEF says there's 85 million of those orphans in the country of India. A third of the orphans in the world live in one country. Now, on the whole continent of Africa, there's about 45 to 50 million orphans. Today, 35,000 of those 230 or so million orphans will die because of neglect or malnutrition or hopelessness. Probably a combination of all three. Well, let's talk about the U.S. just for a second. When we talk about orphans, we are typically talking about those who are wards of the state, so foster care children or children who are available for adoption. In this country, there's about 425,000 children in the orphan care system, I'm sorry, the foster care system across the country right now. 30,000 in the state of Texas, about 8,500 in Harris County. Let that sink in for just a minute. So there's 410,000, 425,000 or so in the foster care system in the country. You might be motivated to know that there's about 525,000 Christian churches in the same country. So let's do the math. 425,000 children, 525,000 churches. It does not take a rocket scientist to come up with an easy solution to caring for 425,000 children if there's 525,000 Christian churches, does it? Does it for me? If there's 30,000 children in the Texas foster care system, there's about 27,000 churches in our state. So if 400 and 500,000 are two big numbers for us this morning, let's just push it down to Texas. 30,000 children in foster care, 27,000 or so churches across the state. Hmm, is there a math equation that Mike could figure out how we could care for those 30,000 children just with the churches we have in this state, just in the churches that God has given to this state? One for one almost, isn't it? We have an orphan crisis in our country, in our state, in our county, and yet we also have the solution in the church here if we hear and listen and respond to what God is saying to do. So why do people get involved because of causes or because of statistics or maybe because they know someone who used to be an orphan, someone who was in the foster care system, someone who has been adopted. Matt, I'm so thankful that your nephew is here today. I want to meet him maybe before he leaves if possible. That would be awesome. When I came to the position that I'm in with Arrow Child and Family Ministries, I'd been in congregational ministry since I left college in like 2004. Well, it was before 2004. It was like 1993, but you guys don't know how old I am yet. <laughs> so for about 12 to 15 years, I'd been a youth pastor and a senior pastor, always preaching, always leading, always engaging the church in the things that, whether it was a denomination or that locally we wanted to be engaged in. But foster care and adoption wasn't one of those things, typically. We would think about it occasionally, but not really engage too deeply into the, the cause. As I was offered this position or, or, or entertained by the possibility, I was praying and thinking about it, one of the things that I started doing was writing down the names of the people I had pastored over the years who had adopted children or who had been foster care parents. There was about 30 that I easily was able to write down. Several in the church that I left on the south side of this town that while I was their pastor 
had, had said, we want to adopt children. We're, we've not been able to have our own. We're going to adopt. Would you help us through that? And I was able to be there when they adopted children. 30-something families that I pastored that I know of, and I would guess that there may be at least 30 more that I just did not know all the story and all the background of their children that I personally had been involved in and I had pastored through the years who had adopted children. I, I knew people. I pastored children. I saw one at District Assembly the other night. I was sitting in the elders' choir getting ready to sing, and he comes down the aisle there with his parents, and he is doing some kind of crazy dance on the front row trying to get my attention. And I was overwhelmed with joy to see little Matthew Cundiff standing there waving at me, still a year later calling me his pastor. But I also, as I was thinking about it, remembered that in addition to the children and the families that I had led and pastored over the years, the most compelling story and reason and person that I knew that had been an orphan was my father, who was adopted by a Christian Nazarene pastor family as a child and lived a drastically different life than he had experienced for about three years with his biological family when he was taken in by this Nazarene pastor couple and given a new name and a new identity, it drastically changed everything about who he was and what he did. And as I was praying and thinking about this, I thought, if that's not a God sign, I, I'm not sure I can identify a God sign. I need to think about that. So we're motivated by cause. We're stirred by statistics. Maybe we are compelled because we know someone personally. Maybe if we have thought about this issue enough, we've searched the scriptures and been, been challenged by biblical truth. Truth, We've thought about things that the Bible says about caring for the orphan and caring for children, and Pastor Jeffrey alluded to it this morning. I, I've got a few that, that, uh, that I just want to throw out there, Deuteronomy and Psalms and Isaiah and James, and we could look throughout all scripture and find both Old and New Testament, God speaking about the need for us to be engaged in the care of of orphans. Psalm 68 says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy dwelling. James 1.27, Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless. And to this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God wants us to pray and think and be challenged and act in the way possible for us for those 230 or 240 million orphans in this world, or the 8,500 orphans in Harris County. God does not want us to forget about them, neglect them, ignore them, but to be engaged, at least, at the very least, in praying for them, that God would fulfill their prayer, even if they're not praying it yet, for a mom and a dad and a home and a place to call their own, an identity, a future, a hope, someone to care for them. So we're compelled by all of these things. And, and I, I do believe that Scripture here stands as the highest reason for us to think about and be compelled to act. But I, won't, I don't want us to just act because we read one verse or we have one verse that's read to us in Scripture and we go, well, the pastor said it this morning, so I have to do it. I, I want us to be touched at a deeper level. So I, I want to tell you a story from 2 Samuel chapter 9 that maybe you've heard before. Maybe it's been preached or used in a Sunday school or a Bible study lesson before, but I'm not certain that we have because I've told this a couple of times to preachers, and they said, that's in the Bible? In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we find King David sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. 
things are going pretty well. It's about 20 years since he had ascended to the throne after King Saul had been killed and his son Jonathan alongside with him killed also. David is the king and it's 20 years past and in that time he has ruled over the land. He has set a precedent about who he is and how he rules and who God is. The, the ark has been brought up and he's danced before the ark in a compelling way. And although it doesn't say it clearly in Scripture, I, I think it's implied there that in those 20 years, David had thought and reflected quite a bit about not only how should a king care for the land and rule the people of the land, but what a good godly king should be like and act like and be about. I think David was praying about that, not just thinking about that. And one day it occurred to David that there might be the possibility that there is some remnants of Saul's line in the land. Now, truth be told, it would have been protocol for a king who's come to the throne because of the death of, a, of an opposing king that one of the very first things that would have taken place was that they would have sent out and had a search take place for every living memory, member, especially male members, of that king's line. Not to, to befriend them, but to kill them. So the tradition would have been that probably... If David comes to the king on this day, tomorrow he starts by looking for Saul's sons and grandsons and anybody in Saul's line that might think they have a claim to the crown. I don't know if David did that or not, but 20 years passes and he is at least thinking about that. And he calls a servant that had been in Saul's court and gives him this order. I want you to go out and I want you to look for someone who is a son or a grandson or who is connected to the line of Saul, someone who's in Saul's family, so that I can show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan was David's best friend. David, Jonathan is killed because of his father's greed and wickedness as the king, and David misses his friend tremendously, even 20 years past. He decides he wants to find someone who's connected to the line of Saul and Jonathan so that he may show kindness on behalf of his friend's memory, on Jonathan's memory. If you're reading King James this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the word used there is loving kindness, I believe. I, I like that a lot, to put the word loving and kindness together, you just kind of mash them together, and I think that's the way it should be. The Hebrew word for that word is chesed. Sounds like you're going to cough when it comes out of your mouth. Chesed. It means goodness and kindness and faithfulness. Not quite the same thing that we mean when we use the word grace, but it's, it's kind of in that ballpark there. To show kindness to someone who doesn't necessarily deserve it and can't win it and can't get it on their own. To do something that you're not required to do. And in this case... David is doing it on behalf of the memory of his friend Jonathan. He wants to show kindness to him. Find one of his sons or grandsons, one of his cousins, a nephew, somebody. Bring him to me. And So the servant of Saul goes out and begins to look. My suspicion is he knew very well that there was one person and one person only that fit this bill. Scripture names, his, names him as Mephibosheth. My guess is that the servant of Saul knew who he was and where he was because he had been protecting him now for 20 years, doing his best to keep him hidden and out of the 
the sounds of the court there in the event that David wanted to find him for harm. Mephibosheth is a crippled child. Scripture says that he was dropped as a child and his legs were crippled. And the servant of Saul, when he returns to David, says, There is one, his name is Mephibosheth. And David says, Bring him to me. I want to see him. Now, the servant of Saul likely was thinking this could go one of two ways. Either he brings him into the court and he does something nice like he says he's going to do, shows him the loving kindness that he says he wants to do, or he brings him into the court and he kills him before my very eyes. And then he figures out that I probably have known all along that I've been involved in protecting him and moving him and providing for him all these years, and then you know what happens to me. But the servant of Saul goes out and brings Mephibosheth back in to David's court, presents him there. Scripture says that he shows him to David, and David begins to speak with him, begins to inquire of him who he is and where he's been and what he's done, and Mephibosheth, in a very humble, fearful, scared way, owns up to who he is. And David says to him, on behalf of the memory, because of the love that I have for your father, Jonathan, I want to change your life. I want to show you hesed, loving kindness, goodwill, faithfulness. I want to change your life forever. You who, for the last 20 plus years, have lived in fear, and you've been crippled and not able to provide for yourself and probably needed the provision of, of this servant of your grandfather's to take care of you. I want to restore to you all the things that rightfully belong to you as a grandson of Saul, as a son of Jonathan, as a friend of my court. You know what Mephibosheth's response is? Well, of course it's thank you. But Scripture says that he essentially says to David, Who am I that you would consider the needs of a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth's plight as an orphan in the land of his father and grandfather, who once were the kings and the king to be, now considers his life worth nothing, that of a dead dog. And he's hidden and he's run and he's lived in fear and he's eaten scraps from the table and he's done his best to overcome the fact that he likely should have been one day the king of Israel but now David's there and he doesn't know if David has been looking for him and if David means him harm and David wants to hurt him but he comes to the court because he's summoned by the one who has cared for him and led him and protected him and he gets there not knowing what his future will be, not knowing what the next five minutes will be. David says to him, from now on, from this point on forevermore, all of the memories of home that you don't have, I'm going to give to you. All of the things that you think would have been true of your life, all of the blessings, all of the gifts, all of the realities of being in the king's court are going to be yours. You're the crippled son of my best friend, and I'll never forget it. Let me put it in the context of this sermon. You are an adult orphan, and I'm going to take care of you. Now, best I know, there was no child welfare policies in Israel at that time. David, as the king, was setting precedent. And he's saying, not, not only am I going to let you know out in front of people that your life is safe and secure, but when you're hungry, you'll eat. 
When you're threatened, you will be protected. When there's a party, you'll be included. When we worship on the high holy days that are our tradition, you'll be there in the court, in the temple, in the sanctuary with me. For all practical purposes, Mephibosheth, you now belong to me. Not because I own you, but because the loving kindness that God has shown me and I so desperately want to show as an act of friendship and reverence to your Father, I will display into your life and my relationship with you. Now here's, here's where I think this really hits us this morning as a Christian people. As one of the 27,000 churches in a state that has 30,000 orphans. We don't need to get involved in foster care or adopting kids just because it's a cause or because the stats blow our mind or even because we had a family member or we know someone who used to be in foster care. All of those are worthy reasons, but they're not the primary reasons why we should get engaged in this need. We should be involved in caring for the orphan around us and the orphan on the other side of the world because it is the will of God for us to reflect the true nature of God in our life through faith. We are a people who are to be about faith, hope, and love. And that does not come out as we hide in this holy room on Sunday mornings for an hour and, and sing and think and pray about it, but it comes out as we go into all the world and display that and show that into people's lives in a real dynamic and practical and transforming way. Second Peter says something that's compelling. I want to pop this up on the screen for us here. This is what he says. Seeing that this, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these I have granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness or loving kindness and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his or her former sins. Now, those things that are listed there in 2 Peter, it's not a menu for us to pick and choose. Nor is it a list of things that only the most perfect super-Christian can achieve and accomplish. But rather, it's Peter saying, these are the things that Christians think about and pursue by the grace of God. Our goals really aren't to be famous and wealthy, really not even healthy. Now, don't hear me say, let's not be healthy or famous. Or, but those aren't our primary goals. Our primary goals are to love people. To show loving kindness in the way that we display the work of God in our lives. To be persistent and diligent in the pursuit of godliness and holiness. All for the sake of displaying the power of God in our life, in us, and through us, and for us. And this is not to prove or earn anything, but rather to just display the simple power and presence of God in our life. 
So why should we get involved in the care of the orphans? I want to give you two reasons this morning. Two things that I, I've thought of and, and, and really want to attach to how we might apply this. The first is loving kindness is not unique or a special feature of the Christian life and ministry. It's a vital trait and natural response as we live entirely in Christ. Catch that part, entirely in Christ. I, I won't take time here, but I think we can live on the, the periphery of a, of a Christian life and have some fruit and a little bit of fruit, but not truly display the fruit that God wants to work in us and through us and for us. But if our life is entirely in Christ, loving kindness is not a unique or special feature that is for the super-Christian, but it's for the average, everyday Joe Christian that sits in this room, no matter your age, experience, background, past, future, or present. It is who God wants us to be and what God wants to empower us to become right now and right here. Secondly, because to share loving kindness with others is not to win or prove our salvation, but rather to display the transforming power of God at work within our hearts as we live in Christ. Not live for Christ, but live in Christ. So David neglects to take his right to kill the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, to protect his crown, to protect his throne. Not just his, but that of his children. If Phibosheth is alive when David dies, there's going to be at least some people who go, well, you know, really the rightful king is Mephibosheth. So let's have a good civil war here and fight this out. And maybe Saul's son, who really rightfully is the one that should be here, we can have a conflict and see who wins. David had the right to make sure his son's thrones were never in doubt or jeopardy. He neglects that. It's more important for him to provide for Mephibosheth, more important for him to display the loving kindness of God in his life and in his kingdom than it is for him to hold on to his rights or the rights of his son. Stephen Harper says that when we are converted, our hearts are cleansed from sin and made fit dwelling places for the Spirit. The activity of the Spirit from within works to transform our total life. Personal holiness expands into social holiness. Salvation from sin becomes salvation for service. What God has done in our spirits, He now moves out to do in our bodies, minds, emotions, and relationships. Salvation from sins, from sin, moves us to salvation for service. When we think about orphans, when we think about the position of the church to make a difference and be somebody in this world, we can't overlook the fact that this is a part of what God had in mind when he fills us with his spirit to do his loving, kind work in all the world. We can't assume that someone else will take care of the need, that someone else will create a home. We have to be personally involved and engaged in the cause to combat the statistics, to honor those who we have known before, to live out the biblical truth that is before us, to be those who are loving and kindly acting in this world on behalf of the orphan who does not only have a home, but often doesn't have a voice or a future or even a purpose. Salvation from sin is a cause to live a saved life, to serve others. But I have to tell you, I, I think about 
the need for orphans and the cause for orphans and the challenge of the church to get involved. And, and sometimes I, I get concerned as I preach or teach or talk to pastors about how we might engage the church for this cause. And if I was working for an organization that was trying to raise money to dig water wells for Haiti or another place or trying to get food so that we could send it to Africa or to another country in need of food, I would probably feel the same way. I, I, I think we see videos like Wizard of Oz or we see a picture of Dorothy and the Tin Man, the Straw Man, the Cowardly Lion. And we see the picture and, and, and we're compelled in the moment for what's there before us. We think about there being no place like home and we go, man, I, I'm really glad Dorothy found a home. That's really a moving and touching place. If we're a parent or a grandparent, we think, man, I'm glad my child has a home and a future and people to protect him or her and take care of them. Because if that wasn't the case, I, I don't know what I would do. I, I don't know how I would feel and I don't know how I would live. For we all have children in our life that we know personally and love recklessly. I mean, there's got to be at least a child that you know that you go, I am in awe of him or her. I hope there's dozens of those children in your life. As adults and even as teenagers, we look at children and go, man, what a future. What potential. What a special, unique creation God has set his hands to work in him or her. And how awesome and what an awesome privilege it is for me to see them and be blessed just briefly by knowing them. But my concern is this, that we are moved by videos or stories or even sometimes by scripture. And in a, in a brief few moments, we're convicted and we go, yes, I'm going to get into that. I, I want to live that. I, I'm going I'm to be different. I'm going to make a difference. And then we leave and we realize we don't know how. We know there's a need. We believe there's a reason for us to, to engage. But we're just not sure what to do, how to do it, where to begin. I, I want to help us with that this morning. Most of the time in church when the preacher's preaching, somewhere inside of us we're fearing someone will fall asleep. So we never ask people to close their eyes until it's time to pray and go to Luby's. But I want you to close your eyes this morning. Because what we need is some good godly imagination about how God might use our experience and our conviction and our place in this world to make a difference. To help a child find a home and have a future. Close your eyes with me this morning. And begin to imagine the children that you know. The children that you've come in contact with. The children that God probably has put into your life to help. Think about how special they are. Think about the 220 or 30 million orphans in the world. The 30,000 in Texas that need a home. 
Now open your eyes for a minute, more than a minute. And I want to suggest to you that until we begin imagining that we can be involved and make a difference, we'll likely never know where to start or what to do. But if we begin to imagine for just a moment that God wants to be active in our life through our relationships, maybe even in our ministry through our church, to work in the life of an orphan, to help a child be able to say there's no place like home and I'm thankful to God that he's given me a home. Until we begin to pray and dream and imagine that we might be engaged personally or as a congregation, we'll never see the Dorothy out there that's right before us. We'll never look and imagine that there might be a child out there that is in our neighborhood or maybe even in this congregation that truly needs us to be involved in advocating for them and preventing terrible things to happen in their life today or tomorrow. But here's the reality. If we ignore it as Christians, if we're uninvolved and disengaged for caring for those who need protection and need help and need identity, there's no one else that's going to do it. No one else that's going to help. And I would say that even if there was a second solution where there would be people who would say, for whatever reason, we want to take on this cause, if they're not doing it because God's called and compelled them to display the loving kindness of God in their life, that child is never truly going to find the healing and help and hope they need through Jesus Christ. They may have a bed, they may have food, they may even have an education and clothes on their back, but internally they'll always be an orphan. They'll always truly be looking for that reconciliation deep within them that fixes all of the hurt and pain that they've had in their life for being separated from their parents for whatever reason. But church, if we just open our eyes, if we just imagine just for a moment, if we think and act like a child just for a moment, we might find there's a Dorothy that's right near us saying somewhere inside of her there's no place like home and wanting to say, would you help me find it? Maybe it's with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and for your love and goodness. We thank you for the way in which you've worked in our life and in our world. We thank you, Lord, for the memories that some of us have of home and how comforting and helpful it is to us. But Lord, just as quickly as we realize our good plight and our, our good scenario, we recognize that there are millions, not a few, but millions in this world who are orphans. First, children who are orphans and in need of a home, need of a mom and a dad, need, in need of those who will care for their most basic needs and lead them towards paths of righteousness for your namesake to display the loving kindness of God in their life that will make the difference, that will heal them and help them and give them hope. Lord, we know there are adult orphans, maybe even in this room or at least in this city, who don't have a home and don't have those memories of happiness and joy at home. There are spiritual orphans that are similar in the same way, feel they're disconnected from a church or 
active and vibrant Christian faith. Lord, I pray that we would be a people. This congregation and all Nazarene and all Christian congregations would be a people who haven't privatized our holy calling, but Lord, we've put it on display in the public courts. And that by the grace of God, we will be a people who are redemptively working in places in this world where children and adults and hurting people need us to get involved to help them. Not for our sake, or not to reduce the statistics and take the burden off the government, Lord, but because it allows us to display the loving kindness and care of our Holy Father that's worked in our life, allows us to display it and work it through into the lives of those who need it so desperately in theirs. May we not be a selfish people for what you have done and given to us, but Lord, may we be generous in giving that back to others. We ask these things in your name we pray. Amen.